Welcome to The Modified View, the podcast where we get to talk about all kinds of cultural body modifications from all over the globe. I'm your host, Ashlyn Lane, and in this very first episode, we will be covering the elusive and sometimes controversial topic of Chinese foot binding. But before we get started, I'd like for everybody to take a second and think about some of the preconceived ideas you might have about foot binding. Think about what you might have heard from other people, some of the images you might have seen, messages in media, and I really want you to think about how people talk about foot binding. We are going to break foot binding into its rise, height, and decline, where we will see its significance in identity, in socioeconomics, and as a gendered issue being solely experienced by women. This will all be considered within its historical context, which, if you're not very familiar with imperial Chinese history, we'll get into a little bit of that as well. When you're ready, let's get started. To understand the view that we get of foot binding, we're going to take a look at how it was positioned in history. Foot binding is first noted around the Northern Song Dynasty, lasting from 960 to 1127 BCE, trickling down from upper-class civilians. Of course, the origins are somewhat uncertain, but this is the latest time period that it is generally accepted that the practice existed. This was a time of great social and economic changes shaped by the intertwined intellectual and political climate. It was an enormous cultural explosion for later imperial China. Many ideologies of the time were centered around nature, seeing it as something that was missing from the human world, and as something that could guide people back to moral order. A large majority of the existing historical documents come from members of the Song Imperial Court, also known as the Literati. This consisted of painters summoned to the court from all over the empire. Over time, their values melded together, creating a distinct academic manner with nature becoming the symbol of the perfectly ordered state. And at the time, foot binding became the invisible symbol of the natural Chinese woman. It tended to start around the age of five and seven, and was often performed by the female relatives of a person's family. There are many variations to foot binding, some that we will never know about, but from what we do know, during this early period, foot binding's aim was to make the foot narrower and more pointed. This effect was achieved by wrapping a cloth around the feet like a tightly fitted sock, similar to pantyhose, hosiery, or tights in Western culture. I'd like to stop for a moment and recognize some of the reasons that foot binding is so elusive in history. First of all, no records exist in the first person due to cultural effects on written productions, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Women and those of lower classes were typically not literate, leaving no written or other records behind. So we can only interpret what was happening through a person's lens who never even experienced foot binding. Documents and art, what we typically use to interpret the past, were focused on other areas, making the appearance of footbinding in there somewhat scarce. Hmm. Due to this, and the variations that we discussed earlier, 
and how those have both changed across time, we can see how it will be difficult to discern everything that's happened in Footbinding's history. The Modified View The height of Footbinding occurred during the Ming Dynasty, from 1368 to 1644, where the largest percent of the population was likely Footbinding than any other time. The empire's struggles with neighboring peoples were nearly incessant, especially with the native Chinese, or Mongols. This period experienced small intervals of Mongol dominance and Manchu dominance in that order. It became important for Chinese citizens to establish firm ethnic identities reflecting the changes in this leadership. China exerted immense cultural and political pressure on East Asia and the Turks, as well as Vietnam and Myanmar to the south. This was one of the most stable and autocratic of any Chinese dynasty. Priceless carvings in jade, ivory, wood, and porcelain, followed by even more achievements that were made in painting and pottery. For example, a palace complex belonging to the Yongle Emperor in the 15th century Beijing was built during this time, which is also known as the Forbidden City. Alongside the growth of cultural pressure, a new kind of footbinding became popular one that requires an increase of strain put on the foot, resulting in extreme changes to the foot's morphology. What I'm about to describe is known as the lotus shape, and it was extremely effective at making the foot appear smaller. To achieve this, the toes are curled under the foot, where the pinky toe to the second toe is wrapped under, and then pushed from the top of the foot down to bring the heel and the ball of the foot closer together. As you can imagine, this dramatically altered the shape of the foot and reduced the size of most of the foot bones, and in some cases, feet were strained to the point of infection. Pressure from the toenails into the skin caused abrasions, which, when not cleaned correctly, can cause all sorts of infections. However, this position did not actually break any of the bones in these women's feet. This is an area that I thought I knew something about foot binding in, but turns out I was entirely wrong. Still, as we can see, foot binding has some pretty serious consequences, and it has often been used as a case displaying how cultural beliefs can override economic need. This assumes that women were not able to make income for their family because of their foot-bound feet, that their immobilization created an overwhelming burden. Also, that cultural beliefs are strong enough to disempower women and girls despite economic hardship. But let's think about this in a different way. If we think about socioeconomic class on a ladder, footbinding is assumed to raise one's status to a family on a higher rung on that ladder through marriage. However, various research that I will include in the show's notes support that women were not reliably able to marry up, even with footbound feet although they believed it would provide a better marriage. Scholars in the past have struggled to justify how, even though footbinding did not better a person's social class, evidence of footbinding exists at every socioeconomic level in the Ming Dynasty. So, we must then ask, what encourages people to practice this intense form of body modification? Uh, a recent shift in scholarship method on Xing Dynasty fashion, the period directly after the Ming, when footbinding continued to be practiced by the majority of women, has revealed even more new source material and a new perspective on textiles and how their trends were shaped by the women in rural and urban workshops and the marketplace. 
Previously, scholarly writing saturated in Western ideas of fashion and its spread deemed this period as fashionably stagnant, which truthfully ignores that when living conditions improved for most people during this period due to the commercialization of textiles, it gave people greater access to fashionable silk or cheaper copies of elite women's dress. We are only able to understand this new perspective by studying urban studio art paintings, palace paintings from the early and mid-Shing literati who were closely tied to urban studio artists, and popular textile prints that recorded the contemporary material culture. (laughs) As the middle class grew, with more lower class people moving upward and more people moving downward who were no longer able to join the literati and other official ranks, The urban and rural producers of textiles and patterns had an extremely large influence on overall fashions of the time. These women contributed heavily to the creation and continuation of trends in these workshops as the creators, designers, and wearers of popular fashions. In these ways, women participated in what is known as self-enhancement, where they could replicate a higher status through the way that they dressed. Fashion was a way to express not only class, but ethnicity as a medium to highlight the social change of the period. As rural and urban women copied elite women's dress, the ideal small feet of foot-bound women were also increasingly replicated. Through the production of these imitations, rural and urban women in the Xing dynasty were able to generate income for their families. And this occupation even encouraged footbinding by allowing women to sit for periods of time to produce elaborate textiles and sell them in a vibrant and growing marketplace. Where, for the first time, people purchased items that were made by strangers. Eventually, embroidery began to replace weaving, and women dedicated extensive amounts of time to create elaborate patterns, especially when it came to shoes. For the families who could afford the initial capital to make such textiles, footbinding ensured a lifelong occupation creating these handicrafts. The decline of footbinding came with the end of the Xing Dynasty and the rise of the Republican era, from 1911 to 1942. Despite state-led efforts to raise people from the lowest class, Downward mobility was still more common than upward mobility, continuing the growth of the middle class. In the late 1800s, China faced three great defeats to Britain, France, and Japan that shook many of their long-held beliefs and practices. This ultimately led to shifts in those areas that highlighted contradictions of the Chinese state and pushed the nation to rethink its ideals. Footbinding had been criticized as a practice by some since its beginning but footbinding was not officially banned until 1898, though policies banning footbinding made very little difference. Punishment from the government often came in the form of fines. Many women were able to avoid punishment by unbinding and rebinding their feet during inspections. Despite these state actions, its practice did not severely decline until China was thrust onto the global stage. A consequence of China's defeat to the West put China and its cultural differences on display for the global public to cast judgment on, whether it be positive or negative. Establishing missionaries and foreign military powers, especially along the coast, 
was the West's way of hoping to bring culture, uniformity, and civility to the Chinese people. Not that they didn't have any of those things before. Ultimately, the humiliation that China faced was thrust onto women's bodies and the binding of their feet. Foot binding was attached to the old order, which was often regarded as vulgar and barbaric. Hence, foot binding was seen as the same. It became one of the first measures of the new republic, established in 1912. Historical documents show that it first sharply declined in coastal regions due to incoming missionaries and foreign military in those areas, but remained a practice inland through the 1930s to the 1950s. The decline was rapid, especially considering its extensive history. A practice that had been culturally relevant for the last thousand years suddenly came to a halt. The issue of footbinding went from a private ritual done by the members of one's family, concealed under clothing and bandages, to a public issue regarded as an unnatural social plague at the center of global political campaigns. Also, almost all of the direct documentation that exists on footbinding was done by these missionaries and anti-footbinding organizations. The majority of these campaigns were led with a misogynistic tone. Women had to admit their status as a degraded temptress or a slave before they could become liberated. Now, footbinding is almost outside of living memory, with the last generation of footbound women being bound in the 1950s. Like any cultural practice, it takes a community of people who understand and teach the values of tradition that make its practice meaningful. We will likely never know the full story of footbinding, largely in part because a narrative coming from the women who experienced it does not exist without prejudice, which makes determining details like choice nearly impossible. The best that can be done is to continue research and thinking with methods that focus on detailing the realities of women in inventive ways. Though footbinding's practice is extreme, We will never understand its creation without seeing its importance within cultural and historical contexts. Footbinding is a great example of how we can comprehend the significance of other forms of body modification that are foreign to us. Thanks for listening. If this was interesting to you, I suggest that you check out the sources that I've left in the show's notes, and if you have any further questions, you can find me on Twitter at The Modified View. A big thank you to the talented Ali Larned and Kenneth Ketchum for the logo, and the musically exceptional Brian Esser for the sounds. See you next time. Wow, that was so cool. I actually like that a lot.